You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Great to see you today, at least half of you. Um, so... Go to your Bibles to Proverbs 18. That's where we're going to be today. Anybody see the uh, script spelling bee uh, on television this week? Not <laughs> yeah, one person. You and me, we watched this. Well, me and my family watched it. I, I'm a, I'm a Johnny come lately on the deal. I was walking through the the living room. My girls are perched on the couch. They TiVo'd the script's spelling bee. And uh, for those of you that don't know, it actually, I'm surprised of all surprised, ESPN is the one that carries the the spelling bee, uh, like it's a sporting event. Anyways, so it starts with 291 people on the stage. It gets whittled down. This is the most unbelievable event that you've ever seen. I walked through, I was kind of making fun of it, and then I just find myself standing there for the next hour mesmerized at these kids that are that, that with such poise can spell every word that is thrown at them. It, it comes down to they're the last two two contestants of this thing is a 12-year-old sixth grader from California. Her name is Ananya uh, Vignet, and she's going head-to-head in this heated battle uh, with uh, Rohan Rajiv. Uh, he's 14-year-old eighth grader from Oklahoma. And there they are, and they're back and forth and back and forth. The last three, by the way, have ended in a tie, go 20, 25 rounds, ends in a tie. This year, they set up uh, safeguards to keep it from happening, uh, to, from going into tie. Didn't have to, didn't go all that way. I think they went 21 rounds, um, and Rohan choked, and uh, the sixth grader won. But anyways, in fact, they even had like a five-year-old who, who turned sixth year in the ordeal. That, um, she didn't, she messed up on the... Uh, uh, written exam slacker, but anyways, so it comes down. The last word, the winning word, is is the word marocane. Okay, and uh, so how this works is there's this judge who he he's kind of amazing. Not sure if he's human or if it's a machine or something, because he can pronounce every single word there was. So he would pronounce the word, and there's this this kid. He was like my kid's age, but not like my kids at all, all right? And, and, and they would say, okay, well, he would, he would say the word, and they would say, well, is there another, another pronunciation? And they, he'd say, no, that's the only pronunciation. Or if there was, he'd give the other pronunciation. So, well, what's the origin of the word? He said, well, what's English origin? It came from, you know, Portuguese through Latin or Klingon or whatever it was. I don't know. Well, give me a definition. Give the definition. Can you use it in a sentence? Use it in a sentence. Can you tell me the origin again? Anyways, I got two minutes. And then they spell the word. Well, this sixth grader, don't let her kid you. As soon as the word was said, she knew how to spell it. She's just going through all the motions. She's just making you wait, okay? Or her mom told her, hey, look, don't just spell the word. You've got to ask all the questions. She's totally uninterested in the answers. So they go back and forth and back and forth and Rohan and um, Ananyan, uh, An- Ananya. And 
finally, he, he misses the word, and then they give her marrow cane, which, by the way, is a dress fabric made of ribs, silk, and rayon, and a filling of other yards, in case you want to try to use it, use it this week in a sentence. And there it is, M-A-R-O-C-A-I-N. By the way, I wrote it down, because I don't know how to spell it. And she does it, and you'd have thought she won like a real sporting event, because everybody goes nuts, and confetti falls. And I mean, those are, people are live-blogging this, live-tweeting it. There are conspiracy theories about how the thing's rigged. They have ESPN commentators, by the way, talking about all this stuff. It's... It was amazing. An entire event devoted to say words are a big deal. You know, I looked it up. According to Compton's Encyclopedia, the total number of words in the English language, you know how many there are? 750,000 words in the English language. And of that number, guess how many we typically, an English speaker in America typically employs? Of the 750,000, typically we use regularly 500 to 2,000 at the most, which represents one half of 1% of our language that we use. Roger's Thesaurus lists 3,000 words describing various emotions. Of those, there's about a thousand of those words for positive emotions, 2,300 of those words or more for negative emotions. More than twice as many negative emotions as there are positive emotions. Think of the implications of that. Well, we're starting a new series today. It's a series for the summer. And the title of the series is The Pursuit of Wisdom. And we're doing that because this summer what we want to do is spend some time in the Bible, uh, in an area of the Bible that the Scripture knows as wisdom literature. They're the, the sayings and the prayers and uh, the, the principles of the Bible. Where the head and the heart meet, where... where where heaven and, and earth seem to come together on the horizon. The, the wisdom literature is where we find language. We, we find the words that, that resonate with our soul, with our experience. And it's the truest parts of life, the truest parts of ourself. It, it's why it's called wisdom, I suppose. And, and so this morning, we are going to begin with words, the wisdom of words. In the book of the Bible that we call Proverbs, uh, it deals with the subject of words maybe more than any other of the other subjects that it deals with. Um, the words we say, the words we left unsaid, the words we listen to, the words we don't listen to, um, how we influence with words and how words influence us. In fact, Jesus speaks about the gravity and the weight of words in Matthew chapter 12, where he says that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for all the careless words that they speak. His half-brother James will write in James chapter 3 that every kind of beast and 
bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, essentially he's saying this. I mean, when we teach an elephant to hula hoop and a, and a, and a, uh, a whale to, to jump rope and a cobra to belly dance and a chip panzee to fly an airplane, but we haven't figured out how to control the, the two-ounce muscle that's stuck in the middle of our head that hides behind our teeth. The truth is that words have more real and dangerous power than most of us are consciously aware of throughout the careless and thoughtless moments of our day. We, we walk around with the with power of, of a nuclear energy to explode in each other's life, and we don't stop often enough to, to give thought to what's at stake when when words leave our mouth. That's why in, in this these two Proverbs, this couplet that we'll look at in Proverbs 18, the writer of Proverbs, the, the sage here, instructs us about the power of words. Look, look at what he says. In Proverbs 18, in, in verses 20 and 21, this is what he says. He, he says this, that the fruit of a man's uh, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He's satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Well, you, you know these two verses go together in the Psalms because fruit is, begins Psalm uh, or in the proverb because. It begins verse 20, and it ends verse 21 there. And fruit is this poetic way of, of saying the, the, the product of the, of the lips. It's something that can be good. It can be satisfying, nourishing, quenching, strengthening, soothing. It can also be something that's nauseating. And notice that the, the way that the poetic line is, is structured, it, it's meant to draw you in. It's meant to cause you to think about it. Did, did you notice this? It says, out of the mouth. Out of the, the, the fruit of the mouth. What comes out of you, what, what you produce. And then he says, uh, you, you'll be satisfied by what it yields. So, so the belly, the, the, the stomach will be satisfied by what comes out of the mouth rather than what goes into the mouth. And so the sage wants you to pause there, draw you in. Think, wait a minute, that's not how that usually works. You're usually satisfied by what goes into your mouth, not by what comes out of your mouth. Now, Jesus said something similar. He was with his disciples. They were getting ready to eat. They didn't wash their hands first. And that bothered the Pharisees a great deal. And so the Pharisees, they convened a, um, a meeting with Jesus about it in Matthew chapter 15. 
And so they said, hey, Jesus, um, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they didn't wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered him, and he said this. He said, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus always had a way with the Pharisees, never really giving them a straight answer. The, the point was this. He, he, was, he would go on to tell them that they were hypocrites, that they honored, they, they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from God. He, he wanted them to know that, look, hey, it wasn't how you looked on the outside. It's what was on the inside that revealed who you really were. It wasn't what you, it wasn't what you were putting inside of you that defiled you. It was what was coming out of you that revealed who you really were. It was the nature of the fruit of your life that was coming out of you. That was the point. So... The writer of Proverbs, what Jesus is also saying, it's the source, what's coming out of you, what comes out of you has the prospect of nourishing those around you or nauseating those around you. That, that's the issue, that's the first thing. But the second thing is this. We've also got to be able to stomach it ourselves. In other words, what you say to impact others will, in fact, fully impact you. The, the writer of Proverbs, the, the wisdom of Proverbs, the, the wisdom for the believers is, is this. Not, not only do the words we speak, the, the words we leave unspoken, do they bring life or do they wreak destruction upon those who hear them, or, they, or those they're intended for. But because we're human beings, relational beings, we're not left unaffected by those words either. In the moment, we're not left unaffected by them in the relationship. We're not left unaffected by the words that go unchecked or checked. In our heart, as they fly out of our mouth. Listen to what else the Proverbs have to say. The, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The lips of the righteous feed many. The mouth of the righteous bring forth wisdom. Here you go. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Proverbs 16. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 26. A lying tongue hates its victim, and a flattering mouth works ruin. David, he'll, he'll write in, in Psalm 39, David will write this. He'll say, I, I'll guard my ways that I will not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle. David knows the power of it, the danger of it. We will reap the benefits or endure the pain of the things we say. Our words, 
What we sow with our words into the soil of other people's lives, we also sow seeds into our own lives, into our own hearts. Nothing we say is neutral. It returns a yield. It always does. Life or death. And the the writer of Proverbs, he's not just talking about Bruce Waltke in his commentary. He says, look, it's not just clinical life and clinical death. It's not just spiritual life and spiritual death here. He's talking about relational life and relational death. Relationship with community or lack of it. A deadly tongue, deadly words, it disrupts community, it's lethal, it cuts you off, it cuts them off, it kills relationship, or it can give life, bring harvest of of spring and vitality. And actually, that's what we were created for. Here's this picture. In the, in the story Jane Eyre, uh, it's, it's written like an autobiography, and then the first part of the story of Jane Eyre, it, it's kind of, the first part of her story is very Cinderella-like. She is, um, story opens up, you find she lives with her aunt and her cousins, She'd lost her parents, and an uncle had promised to take care of her, to raise her. But her uncle had died when she was very young, and now she's stuck with an aunt that doesn't want her and cousins that hate her. She's the object of scorn. In today's language, we would say she's the object of verbal abuse, physical abuse. No one wants her. No one likes her. She's mistreated at every turn. She's locked away every time anybody comes over. She, she never gets to spend Christmas or the holidays. She never gets anything good. I mean, it is, it is terribly sad. She's terribly mistreated. She's, she's called mean and, and ugly and everything seems to to lay at, 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 as her fault. She's always accused. And just a little child she is. And then there comes this moment. She endures this for seven years, eight years, nine years. She is a ten-year-old. And there is this moment early in the book. I mean, and you and the reader, as the reader, you, you've had enough. I mean, you want her to get her due, man. And she... She finally has this moment where she stands before her aunt, Mrs. Reed. That's the character. And all the things come together. And she stands before Mrs. Reed. And with the power of speech and words and eloquence... And circumstance, she begins 
to make her case and dress her down and seemingly with these words right those wrongs and she has her day and she wins the victory and you as the reader I mean you're you're cheering for her I mean justice is being served and this aunt can say nothing and as the reader you're like yeah finally she's getting her due And on the very next page, you read Jane Eyre's regret. Listen to it. If you've ever felt like, you know, I just... I just wish I could say that thing. Listen, listen. I was left there alone, winner of the field. It was the hardest battle I had fought and the first victory I had gained... I stood a while on the rug where Mr. Brocklehurst had stood, and I enjoyed my conqueror's solitude. First, I smiled to myself and felt elate. But the fierce pleasure subsided in me as fast as did the accelerated throb of my pulses. A child cannot quarrel with his elders as I had done, cannot give its furious feelings uncontrolled play as I had given mine without experiencing afterwards the pain of remorse and the chill of reaction. A half an hour's silence and reflection had shown me the madness of my conduct and the dreariness of my hated and hating position. Something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time as an aromatic wine it seemed on swallowing, warm and racy, its after-flavor metallic and corroding, gave me a sensation as if I had been poisoned. Willingly would I now have gone and asked Mrs. Reed's pardon, but I knew partly from experience and partly from instinct that was the way to make her repulse me with double scorn, thereby re-exciting every turbulent impulse of my nature. There I stood in the crater of the bomb that had exploded. That's what it was. Death and life are the power of the tongue, the writer says. Do we know this? The, the writer of problem is it's the power of, of death and life. I mean, Genesis 1, I mean, well, we ought to know this. Instinctually, we open the, the Bible, and the Bible opens up with the power of words. So, so, so let me work for a second, if I may. A little conviction. And then... Let me, then let me salve that with our hope, okay? So that we feel what I think the Bible means for us to know.
that this morning we, we might be convicted where we need to be convicted, where we might be put to death this morning, where we need to be put to death. So that God's word this morning can breathe life into us. I know that's the way it's been for me this week. There's a destructive power of words that happens. It's not talking about inanimate objects. Yell at a tree all you want. You're not going to kill that tree by yelling at it or sidewalk or. But you aim your insult at an image of God. There's an amazing power that has. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's nice, isn't it? It's absolutely untrue. If I were to ask you to name some compliments, attaboys, encouraging words you received in the last week, you'd be hard-pressed. You know why? Encouraging words are like sermons. You forget them before lunchtime. People die because of things said. One writer said, Tongues can be weapons of mass destruction. Watching holocausts and wars, tongues can also be the death of marriages, families, friendships, churches, careers, hopes, understandings, reputations, missionary efforts, and governments. If I were to ask you, though, to tell me names you were called or insults aimed at you in the last year, you could likely name all of them. And some of you could go all the way back to childhood. Look, it doesn't matter if everybody in the room is thinking it. Don't say the words. Don't say it. Words are weapons. As one guy said, they, they, they blast big bloody holes in the world. And words are bricks. You say something out loud and it starts turning solid. You say, you say it loud enough and it becomes a wall you, you can't get through. Parents, hear this. If you want to know the easiest way to set your child on a path of destruction and defeat, use your words. Words will shape the future of a child or they'll destroy the existence of an adult. John Trent, he tells the story of a dad. He's taking his daughter on a, like their first daddy-daughter date. and His intention is he's going to get breakfast and he's going to tell the, you know, have this moment with the daughter. So they order the breakfast and... So they're waiting for the breakfast to come. He, he says to his daughter, he says, okay, I just wanted to tell you, you know, I want you to know how much I love you and how special you are to your mom and me. And we prayed for you for all these years. And you're going to grow up to be such a wonderful girl. And we, we couldn't be prouder of you. And, you know, so he said his, said his spiel and, and the breakfast comes. And so he you know, picks up his fork to, to eat. Little girl, she reaches out and puts her hand on his hand to stop him. 
And she says, longer, Daddy, longer. So he sat her down and he, he begins to tell her some more things. And that happens two or three or four times, Trent says. And he didn't even eat his breakfast. He just spent the whole morning just telling her how much he loved her. Except a few days later, he saw her. He ran. She was running to her mom. She said, Mom. I'm, uh, I'm so special, Dad told me. And that's the power of words spoken into our kids' lives. Listen, marriages, if we want to ensure the destruction of our marriages, I'll tell you how. Use our words. It's Dr. Steve Stevens. He's got this book, uh, Lost in Translation. He says this, There's nothing more painful than having unhealthy communication with the one you love. It's through communication that we connect and our spirits touch. If that connection becomes contaminated, it's only a matter of time before the whole relationship's poisoned. And then he says, I've gathered some close friends and asked them, what not to say to your spouse? And here's the list they gave me. And they gave him the list because these are the things they said. No, I did not ask. This, this is from them. This, this didn't come from you. Somebody came up after the first service and said, did, did, you, did my wife call you? This is, this, is like the, this is like conversation we had last night. I said, no, she didn't call you. Don't say these things. I told you so. I can't talk to you, or I can talk to you till I'm blue in the face, and it doesn't do any good. Here's one, don't say. Guys, don't ever say it. You're just like your mother. That, there's, no, that doesn't, there's no way that's good. Here's, here's another one, don't say. I can, do, I can do whatever I want. There's no context that that's good. You know, you, you're always in a bad mood. Ooh. Well, if you don't like it, you can just leave. You know, I, I don't, you know, it's always your fault. What's wrong with you? Why don't, why don't you ever listen to me? What were you thinking? Oh yeah, what's your problem? I never, I never understand you. Do you, do you always have to be right? Hmm. They come so naturally, don't they? I mean, not, not me, I had to practice them, but I mean. You know what Ephesians 5 says, guys? That we will present our wives, the idea is that we will present them better. 
we will present them to Jesus and we will present them better than they were presented to us. How's that going? First Peter 3, 7, Likewise, live with your husbands in an understanding way, showing the woman as a weaker, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. You can argue with that if you want. That's not the point of this. Since they're heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a few ways to take the verse, but it means for sure this. If you are insulting her, your prayers are hindered. So you insult her, and you pray to God that he'll change her. That's... That strategy doesn't work. All right. Conviction. If you're convicted, great. Here's the grace. Let's now let's answer that conviction. Because the the answer is not go out here and try harder. No, you better go out here there and do better. And I got just a couple of minutes, but here, here's, the, here's the hope. James chapter 3, verse 8 says this No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So you know the answer is not go out there and do better. Just go out there and do better. Because you can't. You can't do it. No human being has that power. Tame cobras. You will do much better playing with cobras. More success in your own power. I offer a couple of things. The power of the Holy Spirit, this, this is one. And we, we've, we're desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We yield control to that. So I have more to say. I'll say it another day. But here's two things I offer to you that are, that are extremely practical and completely depend upon God. One, be quick to confess what our words reveal about our heart rather than using words to paint over that. Here's what I mean. So, John Bunyan has this character, Mr. Talkative, in, in The Pilgrim's Progress. What Mr. Talkative has is a bunch of right words but no substance in his heart. He whitewashes an empty heart, an empty life with a bunch of religious words. He knows all the right things to say but when you get closer to him, you realize there's nothing inside. It's all hollow. And church is full of a bunch of people with religion in their mouth, but emptiness in their heart. So here's what I'd say. Stop. Listen. Pray. Be silent. Take into your heart the Word of God, the conviction of the Spirit. Do not use your words to paint over what needs to be confessed. James chapter 1 says, Be quick to hear, 
slow to speak, slow to anger. And then it says this, receive with meekness, with humbleness, the implanted word of God that's in your heart. You were brought forth to salvation by the word of God, and the word of God is implanted into your heart. And what we need is the Word of God that's implanted in our heart, drawn to the surface of our life, so that that flows out of us. That's our hope. That what is implanted would be drawn out so that it gives life. That's our hope. Now, what draws the implanted Word of God out of us so that it gives life to those around us, which is what we're after. The only thing that draws the implanted Word out of us to give life to those around us is the Word of God. As we read the Word of God, the Spirit of God draws the implanted Word out of us. This Word and this Word match perfectly. And as we read this Word, the Spirit draws the like magnets to each other. We read this, and this Word is drawn out. Drawn out. We read this, and the Spirit, then it's like a magnet, and it draws it out, and it becomes, then it comes out of us. Then it begins to come out of us. Did you know this? And if you're not reading this, this is not drawn out of you. So much more I want to say about this. Maybe I'll just let downtown and White House do whatever they want next week and I'll talk more about this. But here, I'll give you one example. Isaiah 55, and then I'll be done. God says through Isaiah the prophet this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now listen to God saying the same thing that the writer of Proverbs says. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the thing which I sent it. What did he send it? For you shall go out, word. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will be before you and shall break forth in singing. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And then listen to what happens. Instead of the thorn... The thing that's dead shall come up a cypress, an evergreen. And instead of the briar, this old tumbleweed shall come up a myrtle. They shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of God will come, and it will water things that are dead, and it will make them alive. It will water things that were dead and dead forever. And 
make them ever green. I say this to say, if your marriage this morning, you think, man, I've done, there, I make, we've said so many terrible things in our marriage is, is, a, is a tumbleweed. We could plant that tumbleweed in the richest soil in the world, but man, you plant, a, you plant something that's dead. You know what happens? <laughs> it's, it's still not going to grow because it's dead. It doesn't matter with God's Word. It has the ability to take things and... It has the ability to take things that you think are dead and nourish them to, to health and beauty. God's Word can do that to, to heal, to bring life right in the midst of your broken marriage, right in the midst of this difficult relationship you Right in the midst of this place that needs forgiveness, or and I'm sorry, or uh, it can heal that. Bring forth death, or bring forth life. You can't do it on your own, but God's word, as it as it draws the implanted word out of us brings us together. God's Word can do that. The life-giving Word in the midst of us. It can do that. All right. There's more to say. There's always more to say, isn't there? Isn't that great? That's great. Never can get to the end of it. We're going to do this all summer in the wisdom literature. Maybe this is a good place for you to be this summer. If you're not reading God's Word and this is a good place to be. Open the Psalms or the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes and spend some time here with us this summer soaking in the wisdom of what God's Word would have to say. Pray with me. Father, thanks for the time we've got this morning.